Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. All right, I have a treat for you all today. I'm so excited. Back when I started the show in 2006, I wanted to talk to people. I wanted to talk to people about their stories and their perspectives and what we could learn from that. And I am doing an interview series again. And I'm bringing back my friend, Charlie Gilkey. He's been on the show before. And today we're going to talk about systems and institutions and belonging. And when I talk about that, it's not about systems because he's actually a productivity expert. We're going to talk about the systems that we live in, the institutions that we live in, and how that can affect our own feelings of belonging and our own place of belonging. So I invite you to welcome my friend, Charlie Gilkey who is the founder of Productive Flourishing, a company that helps professional creatives, leaders, and change makers take meaningful action on work that matters. He is internationally recognized as a thought leader on productivity, planning, strategy, and leadership for creative people. And his latest book, Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done, was a Publishers Weekly fall 2019 top 10 business and economics book, a Kirkus Reviews top indie book, and the winner of the Eric Hoffer Grand Prize in 2020, which is a big deal. He's also an army veteran and a near PhD in philosophy. That's a whole nother story that maybe in one of my previous shows with him, he had talked about, but we're not going to be talking about that today. Anyways, here's my friend, Charlie Gilkey. And again, we're going to be talking about systems and institutions and our own belonging. And when we're talking about systems and institutions, remember, it's not about his productivity, but it's about our own journeys, being multi-race people, humans, and moving through this world. So thank you so much for joining us today. All right, Charlie. Hello and welcome back. <laughs> welcome back. It has been a minute since I've been on the show. <laughs> and now we have video. This is a whole new world for me. <laughs> I love it. I wish I would have known this Quadcast had its video settings already because I did one earlier today. But anyways, I love that it's video. I love that it's audio. Let's get it. <laughs> but just for the listeners out there, there's not recording a video. It just allows Charlie and I to see each other. So don't be going looking for a video. So we're going to talk about systems, institutions, and belonging. And this kind of sparked out of a conversation we had earlier this week. So I'm really excited to go raw and deep with you because we both struggle with our own biracial stuff. I didn't even know how to address it because I haven't talked about it really that much. Yeah, let's just get into talking to stuff that makes us super uncomfortable. <laughs> That's not a joke. Seriously. <laughs> uh, I think the laughing is for me to help deal with the vulnerability of this whole topic. So here's my first question for you, because I always struggle with this, you know, when I go to the doctors or whatever, but it's what box do you check? Hmm. At this point in my life, I check the black box. It depends. And I think that's the reality of it. If it is coming from an organization that I think is looking at intersectional approaches and wants to know a more accurate makeup of things, and it has a multiple choice, then I might choose multiple choice, right? If it's going to the dentist or something like that to where I think that's not going on, then that's where I would choose black. And part of that is, you know, there's this tension and this year has really pulled me back into this reality is that though it's factually true that I am not just biracial, but multiracial. So my mom is white and native American. My dad is black and native American. So that's partially what can throw people off when they look at me because I have high cheekbones and mm-hmm. it throws like, and so it's like, what are you bro? And at the same time, my lived experience in this world is as a black man, there are times where the, multiracial understanding comes in. And so that I can see multiple angles, I can kind of see how people get to where they get to and have more openness there. But when we look at major decisions, when we look at things like that, I'm seeing the world as a black man and my heart beats black as it were. 
So when you were young, like in your 20s or your teens, and you filled out that form, what box did you check? It was always black then, too. Okay. It's been this weird thing. I had the conversation with my wife about this, and I want to pause here. Anything that I say today about people of color or about my own experience or about the black experience, I don't mean to be representative of all, right? It's not a monolith, no matter what we look at, right? And so give me that. So when I say something like that, all people don't feel this way. I'll try to be good about being saying many or most or something like that. But what I have seen is that many black people, many people of color as well, it's always this tension between whether you check that box or not. And it's not whether it depends on where you are, but it's not so much whether you're going to be discriminated against. But if you're a high achieving, hard charging, really talented person, you don't want that creeping in the back of your head of, am I here just because of that? Because that can lead to all sorts of head trash and shame and overdoing it and never really feeling like you belong because you never know, like, am I at the table because I have the talent to be at the table or am I at the table because they wanted the table to be more color rich? I'm not saying those are mutually exclusive, but you also, it can be one of those challenges. Like you just don't want that. So the trick has been post 22. So I'm 40 now. The last time I was asked this question, like what box to check and things like this, it was in a low stakes environment. It was, you know, fellowships, it was teaching opportunities. It was things like that to where it wasn't one of those things to where to go to what I just said, I would then need to be in a position of like, I'm either having to represent someone else because that's also what can happen to you, right? Or I have to make a certain stake in the ground in a certain way. Right. And so in my professional career, the career that I am now, it's been something that I haven't personally centered. Still don't know that I'm going to. It was really, Corinne, and forgive me if I'm kind of wandering here, but what came up for me during the blackout bestseller list sort of scenario, I started seeing, wait a second, like all of the books all of the attention that we have on black authors right now are either in fiction or racial and social justice or maybe history. Oh, and you can be a celebrity and write a book, right? <laughs> I started asking some of my peers who read a lot of books. It's like, just pop quiz. Name as many black business authors as you can. A lot of people, 80% of people couldn't name one. They, they were talking to one. about you. <laughs> they were talking to one. That's the thing. And I was like, okay, well, that's a thing. Part of it is, so my book start finishing. It's actually a hybrid between business and self-help. And so when people think of that particular genre, they don't think business book. And so it's one of those weird things to where these types of books end up on the business shelf, but that's not just a categorical thing, right? They were thinking like startup, so on and so forth, but then they've forgotten that I've written other business books. A lot of people can think of Damon John, right? He's a national celebrity and things like that. People forget about Malcolm Gladwell because Malcolm Gladwell doesn't center his mixed heritage or his black heritage in a way that's very not part of his work. And so I was like, this is really one of those things where like, okay, in this particular moment, what am I doing in this world? How am I showing up in this world? And how am I portraying a, a certain way that like, if you are a black author. These are the things you get to write about. I have since created a list. It has, you know, eight to 13 authors, but to be honest, it took a while to come up with, with that because there's not, it started me thinking about, okay, what, how do I want to approach this differently? What's my own experience? And then looking at the broader experience in the worlds around George Floyd and a lot of the stuff that happened before that, I was like, okay, it's just one of those seasons to where Apparently, the moment is asking me to reflect upon this. How am I going to respond? The last time was, I think, in 2015, 2016. And so I sort of talked a little bit about that. But I stopped talking about it for that period of time because I decided to redirect my efforts onto long-term systemic change efforts that would actually do things like I'm involved in Social Venture Partners Portland which is providing pre-K access, pre-K education access to 
kids of color, kids in poverty, and kids whose first language is not English, right? Because that, for me, was a way of channeling some of that frustration, some of that energy that I experienced in 2016. It's like, if we're going to change this, we need to change it through these systemic ways. And social media is not really, it's good about pissing us off. (laughs) Is it good about making the change happen that we want to see? Less sure about that. So boots on the ground. Boots on the ground in a different way. I think where we end up with so much of our head trash, it comes because there are enough experiences that have been created because of the systems we live in that it provides just enough fear in the background for us. Right. And so specifically, for instance, people of color and I think women have two different strands that lead them to the perennial fear that they're going to live in a van down by the river, regardless of how much they've accrued for themselves. Right. And so I'll talk to both people of color. When we look at it, there have been plenty of experiences in American history. And I'm not talking about an 1860, right. To where a community and individuals from a community have had their wealth taken from them and the system did not protect them. Whether that's they end up in prison, whether they end up in jail, where we want to look at the Japanese intern camps, whether we want to look at the many examples of black prosperity that happened in the 20s and 30s where white folk just came in and took the property and steamrolled it and there was nothing they can do about it. Whether we want to look at the asymmetric response to funding and government aid that's happening right now with PPP and how it's affecting community of colors. Like this, again, this is not the past past. This is like now. This is in our generational memory. I don't want to be clear about that. Generational memory, I'm not talking about like in our DNA, which there's more evidence that shows that. But like my mom told me this story. It happened to her. (laughs) My dad told me this story. It happened to his father. And so we're passing down that general fear of this can be taken away from you. (laughs) Right? Always be hustling. Always be scrappy. Never give up. Like never get off that grind. Because you never know that day it's going to come and just be taken away from you. So having that, and I know that sense and I know that feeling of this can be lost, right? That's something I have to constantly be deliberate about and work about. But how do you create that safety when you don't feel safe? Yeah, it's really understanding along this axis about how resilient people are and how resilient people of color are. Right. And I think we forget right, when everything's taken away from us, we forget that most of the time we created whatever it was that was taken. And we can likely create it again if we need to. Right. And so we think that that taking away is a final moment. Like you're in the van down by the river and then you're just there for the rest of your life. Right. As opposed to, wait a second, I started in a van down by the river. <laughs> Right. I didn't start in the van down by the river, but I wasn't that much further right from that. It was like, I was, I was poor. Like we, we had food insecurity. Like I remember needing to help mom make choices between the lights and, you know, rent and other things like that. And I was like, I've been there. I'm far more capable now than I was then. So even if I did end up in a van down by the river, I would work my way back out <laughs> because I've done it once. I've done most of that. So hold on a second. So when you get into that place of fear, do you immediately go there or do you have to like take a moment to remind yourself of your story and your truth? This particular fear is one that doesn't have a lot of grip on me. Has it always been the case? I've been personally more afraid about the reality as living as a black man is that I get fewer mistakes and I have to win bigger. And so most of my fears are not about like, it's all going to go away and I'm never going to be able to do it again. It's, this is my shot (laughs) and I got to win big. I can't make a bunch of mistakes because the same mistakes that I've seen, and this is the uncomfortable truth that some people won't like the same mistakes that I've seen some of my white peers make, especially my white man peers make. I know I don't have that room. So it creates more of a fear of getting it right. And because you might lose your shot, you might lose your seat, as opposed to I'm going to end up in the van down by the river. I, I personally know that like, okay, I end up there. I'm going to figure out some way back out of it, right? So I'm not so much worried about that. And 
they also just a lived experience of deploying and going through combat zones and things like that. Like my fear response is much higher. My like it takes a much more to cripple me mm-hmm. just because I'm like, well, I'm not getting shot at today. <laughs> but doesn't mean that I won't slow roll something that I'm afraid of because I'm like, I want to make sure that I get this right because I might not get multiple shots at this. Mm-hmm. And so there's a game that's played with book advances and success of the book and so on and so forth in that it's not that you're only as good as your last book, but it's your last book's success determines who's going to pay attention to you for this book when it comes time to advances and who's going to pick your book and so on and so forth, right? My feeling, and there are other perspectives that have validated that this is an actual legitimate fear, is that... If I come out with a strong like B launch, the narrative around that is going to be, well, he had a shot, sort of a B author. So that's kind of where it's going to go. Whereas in other scenarios, if you want to read more about this, just Google Publishing paid me. New York Times had a great article about this. Whereas same sort of level of success, if our white man would be like, oh, he's got potential, like He's got potential. His next launch is going to be better, so on and so forth, because he did well. He did, you know, he's a great debut author as opposed to like, yeah, it was all right, but that's kind of what he's going to do, right? Sort of scenario. And so you can imagine how much anxiety that that would put on one, right? As you're thinking about how you go about your launch and how you choose these things and how you roll. Just because again, your B shot, your B level of sort of win, which would be, we're having a raw conversation here, so I'll go there. Like, start finishing is sold around 15,000 books in its first year. Okay. Congrats. Thank you. That's pretty good for a first run, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's nothing like to be embarrassed about, so on and so forth. But it doesn't feel to me like it is enough to override these asymmetric tendencies, right? I don't think people are going to look at that number and be excited just given the bias in the systems that we're talking about. Now, given the dust up that happened over publishing paid me and that might be changing. And so to to pull listeners into that conversation, largely what it was found is that black authors and authors of color were paid significantly less, even after they had accrued success than their white peers. Right. So it's showing up even there, but that's how for me that works out less so than I'm going to be in a van down by the river. Cause I'm like, okay, been here sucks, but I'm not going to stay here. So, and I'll put a link in the show notes, but in your medium post, the blog post that you wrote a few years ago was to be black is to be less free. You talked about how, you know, you have built a career now, right? Where you're not really part of the system. You're not some, you're not waiting for a commander to tell you what to do, but this is the sticking point of the system that you still have to tap into for the writing that you do and to get it out into the world. Yeah, I'm out of a system where one person has direct control of me, right? I don't have a boss, like one boss. I have plenty of clients that could all jointly fire me at the same time. (laughs) Odds of that are really low, right? I have, you know, 60,000 some odd readers who could all individually say I'm done with this guy, right? And walk away. Odds of that being pretty low, right? But the system is still there. So I've moved the sort of problem from individuals to systems. And so again, as an author, when I start negotiating these conversations, when we start doing that, it's very much back into a system that has similar effects of less freedom and in different sort of asymmetric effects than if I were in a different scenario. So when I talk with clients, when they get themselves back into a system where it feels oppressed, they remember, and it's almost like this PTSD, and, and I have to remind them that, wait a second, this is who you are now. This is you know what you do now. Does that happen to you when you go back into the book publishing, here's a system, right? Knowing that the rules are against you because of the color of your skin. Do you get triggered back into that like less powerful way of being? I do. Just to be straight up honest, I do. WBB Du Bois talked about double consciousness. And the idea is that as a person of color, and I think women have this too, you're doing two things at the same time. You're thinking about yourself and your own identity, but you're also thinking about what the other person thinks about your identity as a member of a group, right? And so there are plenty of scenarios 
Like if I'm just talking to Corinne and we're just doing something that's not coming up, I don't care that much, right? It's really when there are power asymmetries that start happening that that's where we always see these issues coming up, where there's a power asymmetry. And so it can be tricky, partially because the publishing industry is so very white and that explaining to people in that arena that like, this is how I feel, this is my perspective and them not seeing it completely (laughs) or that that even needs to be a conversation. That's where it's tricky. And so my publisher sounds true is a really conscious woke, you know, publisher. And these conversations are still difficult, right? They're not one of the big five New York publishers where it's like, nope, you're part of a product, right? You're part of a product factory. Here's how this works. So they do really well on that front and it's still challenging. And it just makes me think, and and I remember reading, I don't know, four or five years ago, I, I need to be better about keeping up with some of these resources, but someone made the claim that when you look at sort of the cognitive energy that people of color have to expend in this double consciousness game, it's 15 to 20% of their energy, right? Of just that's in the background running. And what would happen if we freed up that 15 to 20% just to be able to focus on the problem at hand and not all of this cultural identity negotiation that happens. I call that brain juice for my listeners and the brain juice waste, right? That goes out because you're constantly trying to navigate that versus the person who has privilege. He doesn't even have to worry about that. Who can walk into a room? It's yeah. Well, yeah, I think males have a certain type of privilege when it comes that way. Cause most of the time, many of us are not thinking about how we look and like, we're not thinking about our body image. We're like all of that stuff is it's irrelevant in a way or not even thought about, right. It's like, do you not look like, you know, your college dorm room guy? And, you know, did you shave? And that's about it, right? The, it's not like my hair. It's not like, does this dress? Am I showing too much, too little? Like all those different things that, that women just do think about. It's a part of that brain juice being seeped, right? It's the thing. So for years, like I've taken a huge step. I've been doing the show since 2006. And years ago, a friend of mine was like, Corinne, you should live stream and do video. I was like, no way. That's hair and makeup. I'm not doing it. And even today I was like, oh my God, we're going to do video. I need to go do hair and makeup. And it'd been a long day doing a bunch of stuff. And I had a choice. I'm like, I could either get on my spin bike and work out and clear my brain, or I could go do hair and makeup. And I'm like, I choose me. I'm going to go on my spin bike because I need my brain clear and I need my energy better. And so I did that, but that's a huge shift, right? Because for years, there's no way I would have done that. And I'm a person who will walk around my town, go to the grocery store without hair and makeup, but it's so funny. Put me behind a camera and I have this brain juice seepage, this energy, but there was a lot of thought throughout the day. I kept looking at the clock going, I need to go. I need to go. I need to get in the shower. Do I go in the shower? Do I get on the bike? Do I go in the shower? Do I get on the bike? (laughs) Yeah, I thought once today, should I shave before this? And I was like, nah. <laughs> right? And that's, it's a difference in what we're talking about here. So, yeah, whatever. That's the type of thing that we're talking about. And people of color have similar versions of that brain juice of, well, if I speak up in this meeting, am I going to be like the aggressive black guy? Or am I going to be, you know, whatever that might be? And just like, how do I navigate this? Because my words right, are likely going to be interpreted in a different way. Just given the way that what we're talking about works out, it's like whether we're talking about news outlets where, you know, when we see people of color robbing stores and things like that, it's called looting and, you know, riots and things like that. When we see white people doing that, it's, you know, preparing for something. There's just different language that we use to describe, you know, the absconding of something that's not their own, right? Well, I think about Michigan, the governor was sheltering in place, right? And was making everybody shelter in place. And you had these white men with their arms being there and it used being a force of intimidation, but that was okay. But if black people were protesting, that was not okay. And they were peaceful. <laughs> there were guns and there was peace, but the color of the skin changed it. And then you know this, cause I've talked about, like I've been in meetings as a woman and oh, I don't want to be that bitch or, oh, there she is too much because I can be so outspoken. And there's a lot of that brain juice versus just me showing up and asking those hard questions when I'm on those positions, because that's part of what my responsibility is. Right? But I'm always Absolutely. worried about that. I work with 
female entrepreneurs and female executives, right? And so when we start getting into conversations about executive presence, there's a way in which I understand how it can be rather than saying, this is how I think this should go, or this is what I see happening. You'll see female leaders and leaders of color saying, well, you know, I'm not sure, but I kind of think like this is what's going on. (laughs) And I wonder, right, and sort of dancing around what they see as the truth because they don't want to come right hard that way because of the way it's going to be seen or because they just don't trust themselves where other members at the table who may not know anything of what's going on is quite happy to express their opinions, right? Because I think part of when we think about it as a system, when they leave that room, it's not going to be remembered that that person showed up that particular way. But if you're the only woman at the table and you say something that is either incorrect or left of center or whatever it is, you feel, and I think the system represents it, like that's going to be remembered more. It's like, oh, remember what Corinne said, right? To remember how that and that gets attached to you and becomes a truth in a certain way. It becomes about your, who you are. You know, I was, I was thinking about things we were going to talk about today. And where we see as far as the system goes is when it comes to people of color, and I think in some ways women as well, failures are seen as a representation of character. Where when it's white men, it's circumstance, right? It's not that he was a bad person or he wasn't capable. It was just that these particular coincidences came together and it didn't work out for him. Whereas when it's people of color and when it's women, it's like, well, that's who they are. So how this shows up when it comes to these fears of failure and things like that is like, you don't get the, it feels, and I won't speak for everyone, but I feel like I get fewer opportunities for it to be a failure of circumstances versus it being like, oh, that's kind of how that plays out for them or for him. So I want to just pause here for a second because something that is really important for the listeners, because it's been a while since I've had guests on the show is this show. And I appreciate you saying this is your perspective, right? Because I want to hear people's stories because I think we learn so much from people's stories and it's tangible. And then we can take that and apply it to ourselves, right? And so I've always called it the windows of possibility. And so I appreciate you, you know, sharing your story, because this is from your perspective, this is from your journey. And it's important for us to be able to hear that because then we can actually, whether look through another lens, or it can also I know so much of just the last, you know, couple months of being able to see through another lens, and then help me give me words of understanding of there were systems that I didn't even see, right? I didn't even see it, they were so invisible. And then because of what's going on in our country right now, I started to see what had always been right there in front of me. So I appreciate you sharing your perspective. And I wanted to put that out there for the listeners as well. So one of the things that when I was reading your blog post again in Medium, you wrote this quote, and I put it in my notes, was I most wanted to be free to be who I wanted to be. Well, I have a story that I've hid my race right? Or at least, you know, growing up was like, I had always checked the white box, check the white box. Now I'm not sure which box to check. And I spend a lot of brain juice on that. There's always been that internal drive of wanting to be free to be who I wanted to be. And I'm wondering, is do you think that's built in there because of our own struggles that we've had with race? I'm going to come at this one a little bit sideways. So in the book Sapiens, the author talks about the three levels of reality. Objective reality, which is normally say, this is the way the world is. Subjective reality, that these are my thoughts, these are my feelings, but it's not true of the world, it's how I feel. What makes humans remarkable, and sometimes I'm dreadful, is this third layer of reality, which is intersubjective reality. It's not just what I think, it's not just what you think, it's that we've agreed to think about this in a certain way. And in that piece, and I still feel that to this day, is like race is a social construct, right? It's an intersubjective reality. It doesn't actually like, you can't look at someone's skin. You can't look at someone's lived experience. You can't look at like all the different types of things and say, this person is that. And yet it is such a dominant force in our society. It does not seem like an intersubjective truth or intersubjective reality that when, you know, certain people have certain experiences with the cops that it's just like, oh, it's not true of the world. Like, no, in that moment, it's very true, right? It's very, very real. I don't get to choose to 
opt out of the too black, not black enough spectrum, right? I'm somewhere like I, I don't get to opt out of that conversation no matter what I do because of this intersubjective reality. And so that's why the name of the post is to be black is to be less free because one of the things you're not free to do <laughs> is to opt out of that conversation. You are always on that spectrum somewhere. How you navigate it is your own journey. That you can navigate it is not. It's a bounded freedom. Within the boundaries of I'm on this spectrum somewhere. And because of our society, it's not something that I'm going to be able to opt out of. Okay, those are givens. Within that is where I have some freedom to choose. Now, the thing about it is, again, rough conversations. I can't pass as white. I don't think I would want to, but I can't. Just in my particular way that I show up with my skin color, with my facial sort of construct and things like that, it's clear I'm not white. In this conversation around, especially for black people, there is a lot of colorism that's been a product of our society. And so that I can be, depending upon my haircut and how I shave and what I wear, that it can be ambiguous at what race I am. Many black people would argue that that's a certain form of privilege that if I were darker or if I had certain structures, like, you know, that's what it is. And I can admit that it's absolutely true, right? That sometimes people not knowing what you are makes them pause and not categorize you in a certain way. And so you get more freedom in a way on this intersubjective reality sort of thing. And I'm hopefully this is coming off fairly clear, but internally though, I want to go back to that internal experience. I know that it is that bounded freedom. It's less free in a way. And one could argue that like, okay, white people have a same sort of scenario. Like they can't choose not to be white. And I can hear that. What I would push back against is saying to what degree does being white in our society limit your choices, limit your freedom in a very real way. And I think that's where we're, you know, when we start talking about the true differences in opportunities and lived experiences and outcomes and perceptions. Yes, it's going to be true that white people are bound in the same way because of race, because we're all bound in this together. The implications though are asymmetrically different. Yeah. I've never thought about that question. I'm trying to think about a white person want to not be white. I mean, back in the day it used to be, you didn't want to be Irish or you didn't want to be Catholic. Right. So in the white world, there were tears, but that's a really interesting question. I never thought about that. Yeah, Dave Chappelle has a great bit on this. I think it was maybe on the 2016 Saturday Night Live where he said something along the lines of, I'm not saying I endorse this. It's just funny and it's Dave Chappelle, but he's like something about being black. And he's like, I don't know. If I could choose not to be black, I'd be out the game. <laughs> so you kind of have to hear that in Dave Chappelle's voice, right? Uh -huh. But there is some truth underneath that, right? That I don't know, like it posed that question, whether people would choose not to be white or not. Right? Something to think about. That is something to think about. Well, here's a different way to think about it, though. What color would you want your kids to be in this society? Ooh. There is, I remember this skit maybe from the 90s. Listeners help us out. But a woman was talking about racism and things like that. And she was like, let's be honest. like." How many of you would choose for your kids to be black? And she was talking to white people. No one raised their hands, right? And she's like, if that's not the point of us having this conversation and the difference in the lived experience of people, I don't know what is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because when you go into my kids, mm -hmm. you know, they're quarter Korean and they're quarter Lithuanian, but, you know, they look white. I mean, you wouldn't even know. I remember when my kids were in fifth and third grade, we sent them to Korea. My little blonde daughter, you know, she was so fascinated with her heritage and everybody's like, how could you be Korean? Right? I mean, she has a little bit of the almond eyes, but. Yeah. And I'm going to pause here real quick because I want to assert and affirm that black culture is amazing. Mm -hmm. Right. I am actually really proud to be black. Right. I'm proud to have that as part of who I am. And so when I say, would you choose your kids to be black? It's not because I believe that it's less than mm -hmm. what we're commenting upon is the, what that means in the world, in this group of people, 
not what it means like to, to be that type of person. I just want to be clear about that because it's too easy for that conversation to reaffirm the narrative that black is bad or undesirable or less than. And I'm not at all in that camp at the same time that we have to really have some of these conversations. And just because it's hot for all of us, if you live in the American society and a cop pulls your kid over, mm-hmm. what color do you want them to be? Right. That, that's one thing that my kids have talked a lot about is that how much privilege they have if they do get pulled over. And, you know, the other thing to back up, like to my mother who grew up in Korea, you know, the United States was such this amazing place, right? She really wanted to speak English and she wanted to be white and she wanted to be Americanized. And that was such a big thing. And I remember at first growing up with her where she would push away her own heritage because she really wanted to be, she wanted to be white. Now, as she's approaching 80, she's, you know, the last 20 years, she's been more about, oh, Korean's the best. You know about LG, you know, it's everything's the best, right? So it's been interesting to watch her with her own journey with race. But there has been, I think, a worldwide perception for a long time that America was the best, right? And you want to be white within that construct. That's not at all an unfamiliar experience or uncommon pattern when it comes to immigrants, right? Why would you choose to stow up and be in a society where just because of your immigrant status and your culture and your language, you're automatically less than? Who would want that? And especially if she's 80, when she immigrated, like, we have come a long way, y'all, right? We have a long way to go, but we have come a long, long way. My dad was born in 1940. So is my mom. And so, yeah, same ages. And my dad's lived experience of being a black man in the South and everything that he did, like, we have come a long way. And there are still these hard truths that exist or hard intersubjective realities that that lead us to behaving with each other in certain ways. Mm-hmm. And just one other thing, like for me growing up, I had this perception of beauty was, you know, you had to be blonde and blue eyed, right? So it was like, oh, if I could blonde and blue eyed, you know, you had Christy Brinkley and Cheryl Teagues, blonde and blue eyed. That was the definition of beauty. So like for women, you know, what were, when you talk about identities, because identities are potential shame triggers. And what were these identities that you were told they're part of the systems, right? That is better. That it is better, right? It is better to be five foot nine blonde, have certain Barbie shapes, you know, blue eyes, speak a certain way, smile a certain way, laugh a certain way. That is the standard. And where you are (laughs) depends upon how close you are to that. Right. And unfortunately, that especially during a period of time was continually reinforced. And that's the thing that we, I think, are having better conversations about in 2020 than we were in 2016 and and years prior is like, I think we realize to the degree that we participate in the system, that our individual choices and the way that we show up and the way that we dye our hair blonde actually reinforce that thing that's been a shame trigger the whole time. And so it just reminds me of that existentialist sort of grip of like not choosing is a choice and choosing is a choice. Right. And we're all stuck in this together. And the question becomes, how do we choose our way to the reality we want to live in as opposed to just accept that this is the way things are? Because again, that's not the way things are. It's the way we're making them. So I want to address something with that, though, because I I do like that concept. And then I think about my listeners who are overachievers and, you know, perfectionists who are like, oh, my gosh, I've got to always be choosing. One of the things that I say is that there are times that I can't choose. I've lost my capacity. Like, you know, last Sunday, I spent the day on the couch. I watched television. And that's okay. So sometimes you can just opt out. And I have the privilege to opt out for that day. I think that's an important thing. Yes, you get to choose. And if you don't choose, you're choosing. And then remember that it's not a 24-7. I don't think that's what you're saying. Not at all what I'm saying. And I'm also not at all like, you know, if you're at Sunday, you're chilling on the couch and recovering and not out, you know, protesting, that that's a bad choice. I'm not in that camp, right? However, if you're on a hiring committee and choices are being made about who comes in and you're not asking questions or you're letting slights go and things like that, in that context choosing not to have these conversations, choosing not to do something is a choice to keep that system going. And so I would want to be really contextual in that sense. Like 
whether you're buying a certain brand of milk, we have to be careful that like we don't create such a scenario that like cripples people because I think every choice is going to have, you know, I'm going to go on the historical record of what we did to make the world better like that. That's crippling. That's incredibly crippling. At the same time, I think we can look at the smaller ways that we're showing up individually and how we're allowing other people to show up and what norms we're maintaining and saying, you know what? Like I can't change it all, Mm -hmm. but this thing, I think I'm gonna work on that thing. (laughs) That, that piece right there is where I'm going to get some traction as opposed to just being all over the place and then feeling ashamed that you're not doing enough. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that clarification. All right. As we wrap up, I want to talk about belonging, right? Because that was something that we were talking about earlier this week about belonging. And what is your take on belonging, especially when we have these multiracial backgrounds that we have? Hyper-specifically on multiracial folks, there's a way in which you're provisionally or probationally black, right? It's like you do enough things that you can fit, but that's always provisional. And so it's not really that you get to say, this is who I am. This is the community that I'm a part of, so on and so forth. Part of it is that the community accepts you and welcomes you in, warts and all, right? And I think people who are not multiracial, let's let's be clear, we're all multiracial. <laughs> I'm just going to say that, right? And, and let us sit. We're all multiracial, right? Given who human beings are. But if you are not mixed in the way that Corinne and I are mixed. Like you have a community, you have a default community. Mixed folks are always in the position, not always. It can feel like for mixed people that like you're having to choose which communities and how you're going to engage in those communities. And both of those communities may decide (laughs) that the other community gets you or doesn't want you, or you're not a part of this community. That's where belonging can be really tricky because it's hard to belong. If you always feel like you have to do things to belong as opposed to, Multiracial folks don't have that given. Or do they? That's the question, right? Because when we look at, well, there are plenty of examples, and I have lived experiences with it, that people who were mixed, they were just where they were, right? Usually, if it's mixed black-white, it's usually black, right? Because, again, there are certain ways that you can just belong. And, you know, I was thinking about this in the hot tub the other morning, especially if I got more sun. I live in the Pacific Northwest now. And so I'm lighter than I've ever been in my life. Just afraid because I used to be out in the sun. I used to be a few shades darker. And there's a degree to which if I never said anything about being mixed, people probably wouldn't know. I'm just a light skinned black dude. So it's just been thinking about how much of my experience has been mediated through this negotiation between being mixed versus how I present in society for people who don't know that. And why and how we start negotiating that when we're four or five years old and having to make some of these choices. Multiracial kids end up having to negotiate way earlier than kids that come from one dominant culture or one dominant race just because of that given nature of things. So where do you belong? It's a broad question. I don't know. That's the honest truth. I know communities that I could join and be a part of, whether or not I get to a place of true, unreflective, unshakable belonging, I don't know. I'm new at this. Well, thank you. That's honest. Again, there's a difference between where you can join in and where you can pass and where you can perform versus belonging the way that I'm thinking about is that internal belonging, right? And so I know where I'm comfortable. I know what I can join in, but do I feel a true sense of belonging? Can't say with 100% I do. So throughout your life, have you ever had a true sense of belonging? Mm. I think I did in the army. So 2002 to 2010. I mean, let's be clear. I when, when I came back from being deployed, I was in the Army National Guard in Nebraska. And so to be a black company commander in Nebraska is like, a big thing because they're just racial populations of, of Nebraska and things like that. So I knew that that was different, but I didn't feel like I didn't belong. It was just like I was doing the thing. It got me a thing, right? And that thing was a lot of work that it found out that a lot of people don't want after they have it. But anyways, 
there are times when I'm just sitting around in personal relationships where like there's not sort of the societal aspect of things where I feel that. It's more momentary and context specific as opposed to a general this land is my land, this land is your land sort of scenario, right? So yeah, it would go that way. I think that's a really actually important truth for people because I know a lot of my listeners struggle with belonging and that's been my lifelong thing and also the environments that I try to create. So for them to have that permission of, oh, I can belong and then I cannot belong. There's not something wrong with you. It can be more of a fluid situation. Yeah. I mean, some of us feel like we belong with our families. Some of us feel like our families is the worst place of belonging we can ever have, right? I mean, they're not both true at the same time. Both can be true for a given person. And so I think where we end up in suffering, which suffering is, I'm using sort of this in the Buddhist term where it's like pain is what happens to you. Suffering is the story you lay on top of pain. There could be a pain from a lack of belonging. That's just, you don't feel at home somewhere. The suffering can come in when you start making that story about yourself and not being good enough, not being worthy, like so on and so forth. And I think there's a lot of excess suffering that we can avoid. I think if it's just like, you know what, I don't feel like I belong with my family and that's okay. I belong with my three friends. That's where I feel the ultimate belonging. And instead of saying like, well, people should feel belonging with their family and I don't feel belonging with my family. And so therefore I'm wrong. And I know that there are plenty of people that are not mixed, that are not people of color. And as you're mentioning, like, they're like, I've never felt like I belong to. And I totally get you. I'm on your side. Like, I understand that. And I understand the things that may lead you to feel like you don't belong can have just as much weight as the things that lead me to feel like I don't belong, right, in different ways. Or acknowledging that the ways in which systems impact that and create sort of things, an important conversation for us to have. And then the other thing is about when you talk about family. So we have this social construct, right? Of here's your birth family. And so this should be your family. And I've always thought about who are the different people that have, you know, helped lift me up, have supported me, have created a place of belonging for me that didn't necessarily fit those roles that the social construct was supposed to be. Right. And I think that part's really important because otherwise it can create a lot of internal conflict of, but this is the way it's supposed to be when it's not. Who wrote the article? I'm going to forget it. Anyways, he was writing about how the nuclear family was a mistake. And the concept that he had in there is a really provocative article, but he had a concept of forged family. So you have the family, your blood family, and your forged family. And I, that's the first time I'd really thought about, I've been saying fictive family, my fictive brother, like, but forged I like a lot better. Because it's not just that they are substitutes and sort of stand-ins. It's these are the family that you forge and create together. Mm. And our society, I think, has placed way too much attention on our blood family. Mm -hmm. But I think the opportunity we all have is to create the forged family that does create that sense of belonging. And so when you ask me, like, that's what I would really want to say is where do I belong with my forged family? All right, Charlie. Well, thank you so much for coming and being on the show. It's been fantastic to talk with you. Thanks for having me. I hope this was useful and that the juice was worth the discomfort. <laughs> there we go. All right there. So that was my friend, Charlie. Isn't he awesome? Some of my takeaways, I loved something that he said, and I wrote it down where he said, failure are seen as an act of character for women or people who are persons of color. Whereas with white men, failure is just a circumstance. How about we work within our own structures to make our mistakes, our failures to be more of a circumstance. And again, even he shared with you, he can do that in much of his professional life. And then there's still systems that he's a part of. So I invite you to really consider that and think about that. Then the other thing I want to leave on because belonging is such a huge topic for me is this idea of a forged family. Who are your forged family? Create that list. And if there's one person and maybe that forged family is you and you stand with you and you go from there and then you build upon that and maybe it's another person. 
but start with you, stand with you and create that forged family with you, belong to you, and then create belonging in other relationships. It's so much more difficult to try to create belonging with others when you don't have the belonging with yourself. So it's really important that we have the space where we stand with ourselves and we belong with ourselves, because then we can reach out and seek belonging with others where they know all of you. They love all of you. They understand your strengths and your weaknesses and you can relax and not have to think about what's the right thing to say and work on that fitting in. Who do you need to be to be accepted where you can fully be accepted for who you are? But in order to get that from other people, you must give that to yourself. So that sense of belonging starts with you. And then my friend, go create that forged family of yours. All right. Until next time, I'm smelling big for you. And I'm really excited because I've got a whole bunch of fantastic guests who are big yeses who are coming back or coming to the show for the first time. And I can't wait to share those conversations with you. Bye now. Hey, if you enjoy listening to this podcast, you'll love my weekly emails. I know you're thinking, Corinne, really? Do I want another email in my overflowing inbox? Yes, you do. Yippee, skippy, you do. These are short. They're sweet. On Fridays, I send out the Friday podcast. It's a great reminder that there's a new show and it comes straight into your inbox of the latest episode. Awesome. You click on it, you go straight because we all need reminders. We have busy full lives. And then on Sundays, I have my Sunday love column. And these are emails I write from the heart. They're filled with love. We need more love. We all do, myself included. These are short emails where you get a quick takeaway so you can incorporate this into your life because people often want to know what to do and how to do it. And maybe sometimes it's a story that you get, or there's like one time I wrote about the 10 ways to practice gratitude. And that became such a great tool when one of the readers was struggling in the middle of the night, because it can be a scary place in our brains in the middle of the night. And she remembered the email that I sent about 10 ways to practice gratitude. And she was able to practice gratitude and fall back asleep. And that was an awesome lesson for her to incorporate into her life. Go to the show notes and there's a link in the show notes where you can sign up and get these emails in your box. On a lake, she is dreaming, she is drifting, never been so wide awake.